we'd like to feel that you're uh, becoming actualized and stuff, but I'm old enough, you know, to realize that a lot of the times you're just blundering through and there's a kind of beauty in that. And I think that happens in the book, you know, there at the end, Jason, Kyle's lover and the, and his sister are kind of blundering through and, and what gets them through is each other. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon where I'm giving you all seven days of a free trial. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And if you join the ITBR professor level, which you'll see gets you access to all of our rewatch podcast series like Queer as Folk and Smash, and all of our Teaches series, including when we rewatched Scream with you all, when we discussed The Exorcist. We're about to do a Britney Spears memoir episode. So, oh, and The Fall of the House of Usher is coming up. You also get access to both book clubs. And while you're at it, while you're joining our Patreon, where you're getting your seven days for free, I would really love if you... Make sure you like and follow us on Apple or Spotify, and please leave a review. It really does help us in terms of advertisers and sponsors. Thank you all for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Network, and it is just wonderful to be part of this arts and culture organization and have you all out there reach out to me. So again, remember, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And we have a Facebook and we're on X as well. Enjoy this episode, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am joined with a really exciting writer guest. So all you writers out there, I'm giving you what you want. Um, you know, everyone loves when I have the literature episodes. So I know that this guest, he, first of all, has just been so kind and generous and really sweet in an email, listening to other podcast episodes. So I'll shout out Nigel Featherstone, Zachary Zane. Maybe he'll bring up others that he's listened to. But I'm joined here with a really talented writer. His name is Lucian Childs. Lucian was a Peter Taylor Fellow at the Kenyan River R R R Kenyan Review Writers Workshop. There we go. A recipient of the Rasmussen Foundation Individual Artist Project Award and a finalist for the Faulkner Wisdom Short Story Award. He has been an artist in residence at Birdcliff Art Colony in Woodstock, New York, and at Artscape Gibraltar Point on the Toronto Islands. He holds bachelor degrees in two subjects, English from Southern Methodist University and architecture from the University of Texas at Austin. Before I discuss the book, 
that we're really going to be diving into his debut work. He was a contributing editor of the 2017 Lambda Literary finalist. Love Lambda Literary, especially when I had Alexander um, Sanchez on, um, who wrote Rainbow Boys. I remember a lot of Alexander's work has been a Lambda Literary finalist. Okay, so <laughs> that's a rabbit hole detour. But he was a contributing editor of Building Fires in the Snow, a collection of Alaska LGBTQ short fiction and poetry. His stories and book reviews have appeared in literary journals like Rain, oh, I like that title, The Puritan, Sanskrit, Plenitude, and Prairie Fire, among others. He was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, but he's lived in Austin, San Francisco, Anchorage, and he currently is coming to us from Toronto, Ontario. So without further ado, I'm here with Lucian, who's here to talk about his debut work, Dreaming Home, written in 2023. So welcome, Lucian. Hey, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me on. That's uh, quite the intro there. I'm going to have to see if I can live up to all that. <laughs> Well, I always love reading someone's bio because it really gives you that snapshot of all their accomplishments. And when you're listening to all of those accolades, I know even myself when I'm on a show and I hear everyone, I hear someone read my bio, I'm thinking, wait, I did that? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting Who is that because guy? we're so in our day-to-day -day lives. But I think I have to first just start with the exciting discussion we had before I hit the record button, which is all of these places you've lived um, and the studies that you've done in English and architecture. Um, how did, did your studies also speak to you traveling around? Like, are they related or, you know, not necessarily? It seems like you're a very nomadic person. <laughs> well, you know, I've lived in a lot of places, but you have to remember I'm old. So uh, I'm kind of a weird bird out, out here in the literary scene because I this is my debut novel at the age of 74. So uh, I don't know if I have a get a, a record or a gold star for doing that. I'm not really sure which. But uh, so I guess I think one of the advantages or, or about being an older writer is you have a lot of experience to pull from. And and um, you know, there were, I spent decades in many of these places. I um, I lived in Anchorage for twenty five years. San Francisco was like twelve years. Group twenty six years in Dallas. So it seems like I moved around a lot, but it it uh, it you know it, it hasn't been that much really. Um, so in terms of like how they how how being in those places has affected me as a writer. Um, well, I, you know, I think everything you do kind of affects who you are and, you know, and that affects how, who you are also as a writer. But for sure, Texas and then San Francisco and, and this book, Dreaming Comb, both figure really, really strongly. And uh, Kyle, the main character in the book, is... I guess in some ways, kind of a stand-in for me. He was a, like an unhappy queer kid living in Texas, and he, um, uh, I was, I grew, he grew up in Colleen on a on a on an army base, Fort Hood, a really big army base. I grew up completely different, sort of upper middle class Dallas suburban lifestyle. But yeah, we both had to be like deeply hidden as queer people at that time, and. Um, 
So it wasn't until I moved to Austin in the seventies where you know things started like opening up for me because Austin was, I mean, it still is right. This incredibly lively and accepting place. Their motto is "Keep Austin Weird," and uh, part of being weird is also being queer. And uh, so that's where I finally kind of you know was able to you know, spread my wings a little bit and, and, and finally come out. Um, but I guess the thing about Texas at that time, I don't know what it's like now really, but gay life was still pretty under the radar there. And I really wanted to be in some place that was more open and also more diverse. I wanted to live in some place where everybody didn't look like me and, uh, and it was even weirder than Austin. So I ended up going like Kyle does in the book. I ended up uh, running away from Texas and, and uh, living in San Francisco for, for 11 years. And, and I, you know, I was an English major in, 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 uh, in Dallas at SMU, but I kind of set that aside for a long time. And curiously, when I was in, in San Francisco, that was during the, uh, uh, the Violet Quill and this, the explosion of gay literature that was happening in the, in the late 70s and 80s with people like uh, Andrew Holland and Edmund White. And I just like just you know, like soaked all that stuff up, like, you know, dancer from the dance and a boy's, a boy's own story, a beautiful room is empty. Those, those, those authors really have a elevated sense of language and that really influenced me as well. Uh, Cause that's kind of a mark of, of my, of my stuff as well. Uh, so yeah. And then Alaska, I don't know. Uh, uh, I ended up in Alaska because of a man <laughs> It's an old story, but it's a good one. <laughs> and uh, curiously enough, it has a really, really vibrant uh, literary scene. So I sort of incubated as a writer there with uh, lots of workshops and uh, critique groups and um, and finally followed a, yet another man to <laughs> Toronto and uh, where I am now and uh, so it's been kind of a crazy journey, but a, a really interesting one. Well, so did you find that Anchorage, um, the nature, I always hear of just the beauty of Alaska's nature. Like, did you feel that it was a very hermit lifestyle in Alaska? Because I just, my own sense of Alaska is that the cold or the certain seasonal weather can really make you um, kind of closet yourself off, kind of how I imagine Seattle with the rain. But I'm sure, like you yeah. said, there's also a really creative vibrancy. I'm just curious, like how so in Alaska was that? Yeah, that An interesting? Anchorage is uh, is the main city where most people live, and it's really kind of not what you think. And that was one of the things we really brought out in that our anthology. And was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in 2017. We wanted to show urban Alaska. You know, we wanted to say that, hey, drinking a martini out of the deck and listening to, I don't know, house music, that's an Alaskan activity too, right? It's the literature there does tend to be about place and environment and nature, and there's a lot of memoir. 
And uh, so we want to kind of counteract that uh, by talking about urban Alaska. So uh, especially in the wintertime when it can be very dreary because the days are short and the sun is very anemic, right? But that's also the time when the arts community is like off the hook there. There's a lot of theater. There's a lot. We have amazing music huge world-class museum there you know lots of activity there so Anchorage is actually a little buzzing little artistic and creative hub and and very much so in the literary community there are a lot of really great writers uh that have come out of there and that that like myself who no longer live there but uh and many who do still do so it's not what you think Andrew go up yeah. there and Go to Bernie's and hang out on the deck and, and drink a lemon drop and, you know, you'll be a real Alaskan too. Yeah, Anchorage, I'll have to investigate more into it. But I have been to San Francisco and I find that when it comes to people thinking in the public about queer community and LGBTQ lifestyle uh, culture, they think of San Francisco, like that kind right. of has become just right. the bastion of where the queer community congregates. So what I'm curious about is you were there for 11 years. You know, what were the upsides of San Francisco and what mm. were maybe some of the obstacles in San Francisco? Because yeah. I do visiting for a short time. I had my own like prose that I really liked. And there were some, it was just a different type of city than my experience of a North, as a Northeastern, Easterner of Philadelphia and New York City. It's like similar, but also Californian in its style, yeah. which I like the California style, but I'm curious your thoughts on it. Well, you know, this book in a lot of ways is really an homage to my time in, in, in San Francisco. And um, so I got there in 82 and left in 92. And I think the book is a little bit shifted a little bit, you know, later than that. But uh, it was like, a, you know, for me as a guy coming from Texas, you know, to be in this gay city, really. I mean, I lived in the Castro a couple of times. I li basically lived, every place I lived was like around or very close to the Castro. And I just never had experienced that kind of freedom and just being able to kiss your friends in the street and hold hands and you know, it was just, everyone was gay um, uh, except for during my work life, uh, which was downtown and architecture firms. And um, um, so, you know, I kind of want to capture that in the book. Uh, but of course, it was also, uh, I got there right at the height of the party before AIDS had hit. So the huge circuit parties and going to the clubs and the bars and the bathhouses and stuff like that, it, it, it was really a heady time. But then, of course, it all came kind of crashing down about three years after I got there when AIDS started happening. And so, you know, there had to be a lot of AIDS, even though AIDS isn't really the subject of my book. It's not really an AIDS novel. I mean, if you're going to talk about San Francisco at that time, you really got to talk about that too. And um, 
So in terms of the pluses and the minuses of the city, I mean, yeah, there's so many pluses. I mean, just geographically, I mean, where it is, you know, out there in the middle of the bay and the fog, the, the weather is, it plays a big part in, in this book, the fog, especially. And um, um, uh, I don't know, for me, I just, you know, I been, began to kind of gravitate away from that kind of public, more public gay life, you know, as I began to get older, right, the, being in the bars and doing all that stuff held less of a kind of a fascination for me. And um, I began to feel um, that maybe I wasn't quite gay enough for San Francisco. And... Um, uh, and uh, so I kind of when I when I met Paul, uh, my husband uh, who lived in Alaska, um, I kind of jumped at the chance to have this uh, different kind of uh, life, one that was still urban, but that was really close to nature. I mean, we could be sitting in the you know in the kitchen, and then fifteen minutes later, you're in complete wilderness. It's getting that close. Wow. Well, and, you know, even though I love the whole lemon drop invitation, <laughs> I don't drink, but it's not, I don't drink for fitness reasons and health reasons, but I love my mocktails. So I'll still take you up on that Anchorage mocktail cocktail at Bernie's, I think is what you said the place is. Right. Um, so but San Francisco, you were there, like you've said, during such a tumultuous time of the AIDS pandemic and just like feeling that loss as a community. I mean, how do you reflect back on, especially especially me not being born until 1992 and not knowing right. what it was like uh, for AIDS to really be a death sentence? You know, when I grew up, there was medication and right. now I'm on prep. So it's right. a very uh, different time. I actually feel like we've kind of entered my generation back into like the disco 1970s. It has that feeling right now. Right. Um. So you remember both sides of the coin. And right. was there a sense of, because this connects to your book, was there a sense of the nostalgia from the 70s and those party-filled days, but even just the dancing, that people, that the gay men, especially gay men, were still trying to cultivate even though AIDS was around? Was there a forgetting, like trying to pretend it didn't exist, almost like those who pretend that the COVID pandemic didn't happen? For sure, there was a lot of that going on. I, I know at one point there was this big ba uh, battle over the bathhouses. The health department wanted to close the bathhouses down because they felt that they were incubators of uh, AIDS. And and for gay men who had struggled for decades, you know, to finally be able to freely express their sexuality, this was like a hard. A pill to swallow and and um it was quite controversial for a long time and there were protests around it and uh um, um finally they did end up uh closing the bathhouses and then later opening them in a, a modified form so uh yeah there was for sure um 
that kind of uh, backlash against AIDS. But then there was also like a ACT UP was was very active at that time where they'd be having die-ins at the, at the corner of 17th and Market, you know, where people would lay down and they chalk their outlines on the street and or they have, you know, um, disruptions in the opera and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, there were big marches, you know, down to City Hall, candlelight marches. And so there's a real feel feeling of solidarity around uh, uh, around AIDS that happened in that time. It's real, the women's community really kicked in and became like, there was a, a real separation between the men's and, and a women's community uh, before that, but the women's community really uh, um, rose to the occasion and became um, central players in the uh, fight uh, for AIDS services and uh, volunteerism that became such so central to the response to AIDS in San Francisco. Well, and something that you really explore in Dreaming Home is... Um, ex you look a lot at youth and you look a lot at homelessness and there's so many panic stories right now about San Francisco and the housing crisis. I mean, I was there uh, recently and there is a crisis. Um, I can't deny it. Um, but there's a crisis in New York. I think a lot of cities right now just yes. are having, these are economic fallout times of distress in all of the metropolitan areas, but just in our world. Um, so I wonder when it comes to queer youth, do you think that they now are more seen and thankfully are not being thrown out of their homes? Is there more of an acceptance you feel now? Like no matter whether you're in San Francisco, Dallas, Toronto, because of how our times have changed. Well, I am certainly no expert in this field, but you know, I had to do a, I, I had to do a lot of it as fiction, but it's fiction that's grounded in reality. So I had to do a lot of research for all the aspects of uh, of this book, especially the chapter on the conversion therapy, which I don't have any direct experience with. But uh, you know, there are still it's still an issue i mean you would think that it isn't but according to my research uh I, i'm just looking at my little study guide now online there's 42 million youth are homeless annually and 40 percent of those identify as lgbtq plus i mean that is a lot of kids and so a lot of kids are still being thrown out of their houses by their families when they come out or they get caught uh, being gay. And uh, there's a lot of uh, organizations in San Francisco, like the Trevor Project, the Larkin Street Youth Services that are, you know, have been in place since the time I was there uh, to try to, uh, uh, you know, help these kids. Um, so I'd like to say you're correct that it's a lot better than it used to be and maybe it is but uh there's still a lot of kids out queer kids out there who are falling through the cracks even today hi this is dr andrew rimby and when i'm not here on the podcast i am consulting with small businesses 
undergraduate students, graduate students, podcasters, and those in media. So if you're curious about the work that I've done with my consultation services, you could just type me in on Google, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you'll see a few reviews pop up. I've worked on college admission essays for undergraduate students. I've revamped and expanded a small business's social media marketing campaign right here in Port Jefferson, New York. And I've also worked on a graduate student's thesis for her physician assistant program. So if you want to seek me out or inquire about my consultation services, just email me. That's the easiest way to reach me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. That's easy to remember. And tis the season for college admission essays, both undergraduate and graduate, thesis writing, dissertation writing. Um, do you want to create a podcast and you don't know where to begin? Media work, um, how to open a TikTok, how to start creating videos on TikTok, what to do with your Instagram, all of that I have done. So just reach out to me. Also, I'm really excited to announce that the December book club choice is Britney Spears's The Woman in Me memoir. So to join the book club, head to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and go to events and you're going to see a form there. Just so I know how many of you are joining the book club and that way I can reach out to each of your email addresses and poll all of you to see what date at the end of December works. It's going to be the week after Christmas, so don't worry. It's not going to be the week of Christmas. That would be hectic. And then I'll let you all know how to join the book club, which happens on Patreon. You just join under the ITBR book club section. So can't wait to see who wants to discuss Britney Spears. We have a lot to dissect there. And in the also, if you want to join the Wicked Broadway Musical group event, which is happening in March, head to that event section on the website and fill out that Google form by December 1st. Ah, so much happening here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and I love this community. I love being the host and director of this arts and culture organization. Thank you all for supporting me. It means so much. And please spread the word for my consultation services, for the podcast, the book club, the Broadway musical, group event, all the things. And without further ado, here's today's episode. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot 
H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. And um, so, I mean, even though Kyle is a little bit older in Dreaming Home when he's living in his car, um, he does like run away right after high school when he's like 18 and he lives in his car for a time in Houston. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's better, but you know, it's still happening. Just like conversion therapy is still happening. I, I know when I workshop that chapter um, uh, at a writing class uh, in what was then called Ryerson College, uh, University in in, uh, in Toronto, they thought it was science fiction. <laughs> they thought I was making it up. And I'm like, you know, conversion therapy is still a very much a, you know, happening out there. I mean, Canada didn't outlaw it until 2022. I mean, that's like unbelievable. And when I was first doing the research, um, 22 states uh, allowed the practice. So, uh, mm-hmm. and six only oh, had they had partial bans. So, Alaska is one of them. You know, where I'm going next week on a book tour. So, yeah, it's definitely not science fiction. That bad stuff is still going on out there and you know aids too and san francisco is still a big factor in the community well new jersey because that's where i was uh born and raised was having a back and forth about conversion therapy i think it is now banned but i remember when i'm not sure it might not be officially banned um i think it is but Chris, <laughs> Chris, so yeah, Chris Christie, I know, was like going back and forth about banning it. And that's when he was governor. So um, with Phil Murphy, uh, I'd assume it is uh, banned. But I'm curious, where does that conversion therapy narrative in your book from? Is it your own personal journey? Is it people like you've known who've gone through conversion therapy? It's such a heady topic. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I was amazed that one of the reviewers uh, seemed to think I was running from personal experience. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes, you know, that's what the writer would hope for. Um, n- no, um, um, I, I don't have personal experience in it. So what I did was um, you know, deep research. I mean, for six to eight months, I didn't write anything at all. Practically, I was uh, watching movies. I was looking at YouTube uh, videos of these uh, ex-gay preachers. I, I was, uh, you know, reading everything I could get my hands on. Uh, the Boy Erased, of course, was a, a kind of a big source, and which is a great, uh, a great book. And uh, and uh, there's a lot of scripture in that passage. And I'm not religious, and and so it just required like very, very deep research. I couldn't get in there today and write that or edit it. I would, couldn't even touch it because I'm just not in, I'm just not immersed in it like I was. Um, um, so I, I think that's, I, I I like writing from research. And, and so that was a kind of a, um, and even though it's difficult, of course, uh, it was a exciting time to be, get so down in the weeds and uh and oddly enough um 
a lot of that scripture is um i use most of the king james versions and uh it's oddly beautiful <laughs> and even though some of it can be you know it's super troubling but um there's a lot of beautiful parts in in the scriptures as well and and kyle the the main character wrestles with that you know the the kind of the horrible twisted stuff they did to him but also the the beautiful stuff that he learned there as well so i did look 2013 new jersey band conversion therapy under chris christie so i'll i'll give chris christie his due he did ban it um they were the second state actually so wow. new jersey new jersey's <laughs> usually ahead of the curve in a lot of things they even have LGBT education right now in the curriculum. But of course, districts are now challenging New Jersey. Districts are now challenging the state because they don't mm -hmm. want the LGBT curriculum right. in the more Republican right. suburbs. So right. right now, well, let's talk about it. Right now, we're in a time where there is a backlash um, and you grew up, you know, in Dallas. And it's not the same Dallas as it is now. I mean, now Dallas, no. I know there is like a LGBT visibility. Um, even San Antonio, I visited there. There's an awareness, like a lot of the Texas cities, you know, everyone yeah. knows someone who's gay, really. Um, right. And like that could even extend into the suburbs and the rural areas. But again, it doesn't mean everyone's accepting. It just means there's more openness. Um, so what do You're you think? You're not alone. Is, yeah. You're not alone. Exactly. Yeah. So why do you think there is a backlash right now? Like, why is there challenges against teaching material that's LGBTQ? But then people will say, but I'm accepting of the community. I just don't want my children to learn about it. Well, I'm certainly not an expert in this either. But uh, I mean, I read the newspapers, so I could offer an opinion. But it, it's seems like it's a kind of a callous way for I'm sorry but it's to me it's like a kind of a callous way for the Republicans to to uh, gather power or to keep power they they have become the the party of grievance and there's a lot of people out there I mean you and I people like us we love this new world right we love how diverse it is we love how the mixture of cultures that that we live in Toronto is an incredibly diverse uh 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 city and I'm sure I don't know about where you are in Long Island but certainly the the New York area is even more so but there's a lot of people out there that are threatened by that and um uh and they don't like change and then they don't like uh where things are going and and i i think that it's fear-based and the republicans uh and the conservatives are are capitalizing on that and if things go in cycles right and um this is the unfortunately the cycle we are in right now that uh queer rights are under under attack in a lot of people places and especially for trans people so do you think that like even using your character Kyle as a case study, mm -hmm. you know, and I know you don't have to be an expert, don't worry, um, <laughs> you know, Lucian. I am curious though, because we're taken on Kyle's journey and this 
paradise that he finds in San Francisco, right? Like the community and just this awareness of feeling seen. Do you think though, the other side of it, right? Like you've talked about the Republican um, almost manipulating the people to really go against diverse opinions or diverse cultures. Like there are the scapegoats. Anyone who isn't, you know, white and able-bodied and straight, um, like they're threatening to the fabric of America. Because like you said, the culture and just the representation of cultures is so expansive now in America and keeps growing, which is so beautiful in my opinion, like yours. How do you weigh in when it comes to though, those who are feeling so empowered right now, who found their community, like who are fighting against, not even fighting against, but they're living their authentic lives, giving the middle finger to those who threaten their existence or want them to be silenced. You know, do you feel that there is though such a powerful swing in the other direction? Are you talking about a uh, swing uh, to the left or in, in, fa in trying to reassert uh, the, uh, uh, the power and the validity of gay rights? Yeah, I do think that's happening. My, my, um, my cousin is, uh, is a retired, retired librarian and she's real involved in this, uh, this movement now that, you know, there's uh, these parents for, I don't know, parental rights they're calling it. And they're saying that they want to take out like everything from the library that has to do with anything gay. I, I'm, I'm really kind of expecting my book to be banned because and there's not much sex in it, but it doesn't take much sex for these people to want to ban a book, does it? But anyway, she is real involved in this uh, this fight against these people, and like several of the bookstores there in in, in Texas have uh, have sued the state because they they pass this incredibly draconian law that would require the bookstores to read every single title that they have on their shelves and and deem whether or not it's appropriate. And the bookstores are like, we don't have the manpower to do that. It's not our job. And uh, so I think there people are starting to fight back and I think they're having some success, but uh, uh, that this fight seems to be coming a little bit late. The conservative forces have really been organized now for quite some time and um, I think the, the voices of liberality are playing catch up at the moment. And I, I, um, I, I hope it finally starts paying off more and more. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I have my own feelings about the Democrat party right now. And mm -hmm. a lot of them are not positive. So I'll keep <laughs> them. Like, I feel that they're very confused and that's not good. Like you've said, the Republicans, they've had this playbook ever since the Tea Party movement. I mean, you can go even further back. We could go back to when Anita, um, what was her name? She got a pie in Brian. the uh, Brian. Anita Bryant. Yeah, 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 Anita Bryant. And like, they've always had this uh, protect the children mantra against right. Right. Uh, the LGBTQ community. Like, this is not right. new to them. 
But I feel for the Democrats, they're so surprised that the Republicans are that organized or are able to, you know, use legalities to actually make these draconian laws like but they've collected power. So my feeling, my hope is that the Democrats start to really unite, like create a collective stronghold. I hope there's a stronghold that starts happening instead of, you know, my personal opinion, which everything is on the show, but uh, <laughs> unless I'm saying facts or statistics, but my personal opinion is the 24 hour news cycle has really watered down and um, made everything a breaking news headline when it's not a breaking news headline right. instead of us focusing on these issues of taking away freedom of speech, which it is with literature, that's a freedom of speech issue to not have access. Um, maybe we shouldn't be debating, um, you know, every single um, line that someone has said in the Republican debate or, you know, what's the next most egregious thing that's happened um, with Democrat in fighting, you know, I just think that we're feeding, they're feeding into um, sensationalized politics. Mm. And yeah, the sensationalism is what really bothers me because it harms, it harms the everyday people like you're talking about in your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think the Democrats are one, they're afraid to poke the bear, right? Because uh, a lot of, a lot of these people are, are, very angry, right, and threatening. You know, they go to the city councils in terms of the, uh, the book issue. They go to the city councils and, and you know take over, yell and scream, and it's uh, um, so. And but they're so they're afraid to poke the bear. But I also think they're not as good at creating simple slogans as the Republicans are, right? The Republicans can go. Make America Great Again, parental rights. And the Democrats are like, well, you know, the, these issues are really complicated. And if you look at it one way, it's it's like this. And if you look, you know, whoa, you, people don't really respond to that. They really respond to those simple slogans that rile them up. And uh, so I think the De Democrats have a little bit of a harder task at hand because they actually have to, you know, maintain some connection to truth and reality. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture, and the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, 
writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. Happy winter. Happy holidays. I hope you all are merry and bright out there. I am here in Port Jefferson, New York on Long Island in one of my favorite stores. It is the Soapbox NY, a Bath and Body Boutique. I'm here with one of the co-owners, Janine. Hi, Janine. Happy holidays. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Thank you. Good. So I know you have many winter scents to walk us through. So let's yes. get started because there's a lot to talk about and it's exciting so what is this that i'm holding this is a hand wash by one of our favorite companies greenwich bay uh, it's a gingerbread scent which is wonderful very christmasy very holiday-ish and you can follow it up by using greenwich bay's lotion is a hand and body lotion and to keep with that gingerbread scent is a um, sugar whip scrub it's a body scrub that you could use in the shower and it's by a company called primal elements and it's something I'm actually using currently. And I said to Janine, and she always laughs, uh, that I really feel like I'm in Santa's bakery. So, oh, it is so yummy. It's, good. it's a good one. And then, what are these adorable little yeah. soap gifts? Jumping back to Greenwich Bay, this is a great little grab-and-go gift, uh, great for a stocking supper. There are mini soaps by Greenwich Bay, and it just gives you a little sample of some of their mini soaps to try. Ooh, peppermint, yeah. mistletoe, holly. Yeah, it's wonderful. Cranberry. Yeah, and there's some um, red in there too. And then what is this room spray? This is from company Michelle Design Works, another one of our favorites. Room spray that you can use any room in your house, just kind of freshens up the room a bit. And what is this by Michelle Design Also Works? by Michelle Design Works is Winter Blooms, one of their new scents this holiday season. It's great. It's um, a hand wash. You can use it in your kitchen or your bathroom. And then here and is something to follow it up with. Exactly. It's a hand and body lotion. And then what is this beautiful decorative candle here? One of our favorites that we actually sell mm. all year round because it's so popular. This is the scent of Fraser Fur by Times. I think I'm becoming addicted to it. Yes. I think you are because you already own one, I believe. I own one and it is a decorative candle for me because I'm about to open it, but it's just in such I know the a beautiful is, package. I don't know what's better, the packaging or the scents. I'm using it wonderful. as a holiday decoration. So cool. I'll get to the candle eventually, everyone. But it's wonderful because with Times and their Fraser Fur, not only do they carry the candles, but they also make it in the sense in the diffuser, in soap, the hand lotion, the um, the hand soap. It's just a great line and a great scent. We're going to be Fraser Furred 
uh, crazed this holiday season. I love it. And then what are these so adorable pajamas? My friends next to me, uh, a company called Hello Mellow. But these pajamas are so comfy. We have the t-shirts with the pajama pants. These happen to be the Nutcrackers, one of my favorite this holiday season. And then they have the night shirts too. And they're so comfy. And it says, oh, what What fun fun. with the little Santa hat. Yes, and we have others as well. So Janine, how can everyone out there get their hands on your hand and body and even pajama products? Well, we'd be more than happy to see you in our shop. We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson Village. You could always call us to place an order. We're happy to ship to you. Our phone number is 631-509-1424. You can place an order on our website, soapboxny.com. And you could also find us on Instagram or TikTok at the soapboxny. So many options. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for all of you out there to just enjoy what I love so much about the soapbox and why. So with that, thank you so much. Happy winter, everyone. And this is going to keep you all, especially in the Northeast, merry and cheery with our cold, dark days. Yes, I know they're coming, unfortunately, but we'll survive. But this will get you that pep in your spirits. Exactly. There we go. Happy holidays. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres, and recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture. In the spring, I had on Drs. Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So What better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Well, and that's why I was so privileged to interview Marianne Williamson, because I had read her book about um, the power of love. And now she's running against Biden, but he's not getting a lot of airtime. But that's a whole other issue. Um, But 
but I, why I bring her up is because she harnesses love. Like I do love what she says about using love as the spiritual force as like if the Republicans are going to be hateful and they're being succeeding in using hate, why aren't the Democrats using love mm -hmm. as their slogans? And like that is what will quench the fire of volatility. And, you know, people could have their um, debates about her or her spirituality, her spirituality. But also at the end of the day, I think. I mean, even the LGBTQ community has like said, maybe she like, you know, downplayed the AIDS, um, a, like the AIDS actual virus, even though, you know, she's donated food to those who have AIDS during the 80s, whatever. So people, again, are always going to pull apart, I think, anyone who runs for politics. It's not an easy job. Um, I would not want to be scrutinized like that. But mm -hmm. something that is beautiful is that message of harnessing love. Like, it seems that that's something that's really connected to your work, even about how you're imagining the space of home. Like, it is really, Kyle, he's trying to find a place of safety. I mean, like, what does home mean to you? It doesn't mean a place where you're trying to find acceptance and love. Yeah, I think, um, you know, actually, the, the title was suggested to, to me by my editor. Uh, I, I I don't know about you, but I'm just terrible at titles. And uh, um, but the more I started thinking about it, um, uh, the more I started going, yeah, that is kind of what's happening here in this. Uh, not only Kyle, but also his mom. You know, his mom is desperately searching for uh, who comes to live with him in San Francisco, Defer desperately searching for a home and um, some place where she can be herself as well. So um, uh, and of course, Rachel, the sister, um, you just have to feel for her, you know, because she's sort of cut loose by everyone. But she, I think also finds a place for herself when she oddly enough who would have thought becomes a um kind of a pulp fiction writer living in in uh, fort lauderdale so everybody really in this book is searching for uh for home and um you know I, this book um is about trauma it's about the uh uh, effects of trauma, uh, not only on Kyle, but on the whole family and on his love, uh, loved ones. And uh, so to me, you know, uh, trauma is kind of a loss of home, right? It's a loss of identity, loss of feeling of safety in your body and also in your mind, because they kind of did a, um, you know, a number on Kyle um, mentally and, and emotionally, how, you know, feelings of, of, uh, of uh, lack of self-worth and um, the depression that he deals with. Um, but home also, you know, physically, just, you know, having a physical place. So he becomes an architect. He, he, uh, um, he makes dream houses, you know, he's working on this plan for this house that, it's not really even a real project. It's just some fantasy that he's cooked up for 
what kind of ideal life he wants to have with 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 an ideal lover of and then later he um uh in in puerto rico he he, he actually builds a house with his best friend uh but it was just also kind of a romantically described uh dream house on the on the beach in san juan so um uh so what's tricky to write about um um trauma and, and this issue of home is that you know it can verge towards sentimentality in melodrama and um which I I think this book kind of like edges up to the cliff of that, you know, but it doesn't actually jump, you know, jump off, you know. Um, emotion is really central to melodrama and emotion is really uh, central here in this book. Um, um, so, I mean, I don't know if you heard uh, uh, and you read that New Yorker article in 2021, uh, called the case against the trauma plot. It caused a big kerfluffle when it first came out. Uh, I, I'm going to massacre the writer's name, uh, uh, Parul Segal. I don't know if that's correct or not. So, uh, but she sort of posited that uh, the problem with the trauma plot uh, was that you ended up with characters that were just merely symptom sets, you know, they were, or con conversely, they were cardboard cutout villains or wannabe saviors. And um, so that's kind of the issue that uh, the problem is I was up with here. And partially my solution was to not make Kyle the focus of the book. Mm. So the the book has an unusual structure. It's made up of six different short stories and each story has a, a different narrator or a different point of view. And uh, so Kyle's point of view is really actually only in one of the stories. But this kind of takes the focus off of sort of a sort of the endless repetition of his depression and his feelings of lack of self-worth, you know, his spiraling down and puts it on the people around him uh, also. And how are they dealing with, with it? And how are they dealing with the effects of, of the trauma? And I thought that was a more interesting gamut and kind of um, uh, uh address some of the issues that this uh what the, this writer the new yorker was talking about um another thing i did also to kind of uh, uh take the the focus off of the uh, off of the dark stuff is it's also a, a pretty funny book yeah. uh even those first two sections that are about the of uh, uh, the initial sort of violence and the conversion therapy are are actually pretty funny they're they're written from the perspective in the in the voice of uh children and uh and they're kind of got a snarky ironic you know wit uh, uh, new york times called them dr deliciously droll so i love that you know, well and I, I, these themes can like you said these themes can either go more in the especially especially home um 
slogans like there's no place like home home is where the heart is can really be those sentimentalized hallmark movies which i actually love really cheery holiday winter movies right. um you know there's a fun thing to having hot cocoa and watching like a hallmark movie during christmas single all the way or what are those, those yeah gay i know christmas and like they always <laughs> i mean or like the family stone which isn't sentimental but it's still like full of the family drama there's like a reason why I think we all feel so nostalgic during the holidays to see family movies. Like they all are centered on families really, but then you could have more of the comedic exploration of even when it comes to family trauma, like a running with scissors, which I think is one of the best, um, like zany comedic ways of telling the cutting, um, edge narrative of trauma and Augustine Burroughs, I just think, does a really great job with that. Um, but then you have But I'm a Cheerleader. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I've seen it, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, right. And they uh, mock with Natasha Leone. Yeah. If you haven't seen it out there, but you know who Natasha Leone. Now she's in so many shows, but she's great in that. And just the whole mock, uh, RuPaul's in it. And the mocking of conversion therapy and making it like an SNL skit. It's so good. But right, you could go in either. It really can easily go into the what was that novel? So many of my friends, we read it um, in the early 2000s. A boy, is it a boy called It? Yes, I think it's a boy yeah. called It. Remember that series? Okay. Like that is really gut wrenching. I mean, um, what the mom puts the son through. But then you really don't get to understand who the mom is. Again, I'm not excusing what she did to the son because it's really beyond the pale, tra traumatizing and abusive. But I see what you're saying. And you found this way. It reminds me of interviewing Celia Lasky, who wrote Under the Rainbow, which also takes that genre style of doing more short stories or vignettes through different characters from the narrative. And then it becomes this new novel. And I like that approach. I think it really works with her. It works with you, uh, Lucian. And I wonder, it probably seems really freeing too, to not have to think of one psyche as the central protagonist, like just trying to follow Kyle's, you know, highs and lows. Like that's a lot of weight yeah, yeah. as a writer. Well, for me, you know, I kind of felt like I got to uh, have my cake and eat it, too, because I do feel like I'm a short story writer. I like that kind of unitary uh, narrative arc. Um, but I was sort of chafing at um, the constraints. I mean, obviously, the constraints are the, the chief um uh, uh, the thing that makes the short story so so amazing, mm -hmm. you know, is how constrained they are. But also, I was sort of feeling cheated um, almost. Like you, often, you don't know who the people really are. They don't have families. You might not even know what they do for a living. They just exist in this microscope. You know, that that you can see in the frame of the microscope, and so this gave me the ability to. Um, still write short stories with the, uh, you know, beginning, middle and end, you know, but, but at the service of a long story and, you know, one that goes on for 40 years and that covers all these different people. And so I was, I mean, 
uh, it wasn't really my idea. Uh, uh, I have to tell you, uh, I thought I was going to be publishing a short story collection. And um, so I uh, hooked up with a very fine Canadian writer here named Carolyn Anderson. And she suggested that I link my uh, published stories. And I was like, what are you talking about? They are written 10 years apart, you know? And um, But as I started thinking about it, you know, I was like, you know, wait a minute, there is kind of this implied arc um, to these stories. And uh, so we worked to strengthen that over nine months. And then and then I was very fortunate when um, John Metcalf, uh, who is kind of the grand old man of Canadian letters up here and, and um, took it on uh, for Biblioasis. And he really wanted to make it a not kind of like feel like a novel so mm -hmm. we spent another nine months uh strengthening the connections and adding stories and um i was really worried that people were gonna go like what the heck is it you know it's is it a novel is it a link short story collection it, you know but um and the publisher initially i think had a little bit of a you know they're like that problem and so at first they were calling it a novel on the cover and, and so finally they just took that off and they just decided not to call it anything at all but uh but dreaming home and so far um the the reviews uh have all been very positive they they've liked the form they like the that the fact that uh, and readers that i talk to like the fact that they have to kind of fill in the blanks between the stories themselves. And uh, and they feel, I was worried that they wouldn't be really engaged with the characters because they don't get to stay with them for very long, even though the characters do appear in multiple stories. But they all seem really engaged in the characters and have their favorites and fight over, you know, who's the, like, is Rachel evil or is she also, you know, a, a victim? Um, and same with the father. And so it's caused a lot of great discussions. And I think partially because it isn't all spelled out for you as a, as the writer. Imagine that you're writing the Turner classic movie, great movie ride in Hollywood studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the great movie ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz, where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the great movie ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly, the list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. 
and the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Happy almost holiday season. Because the holidays are upon us, I'm sure so many of you out there are thinking, oh my, what am I going to get my friends, my family, my children, my romantic partner, my husband, my wife, any, you know, significant person in your life. Look no further than my good friend, Mandy Bangle, who makes handmade crocheted items. Her company is called Mandy Made It. You can follow her on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. And you will see all of these crocheted items that she's going to be able to customize for you, including special characters, sports team figures, even holiday items like a snowflake or a Christmas tree. So I have Mandy's keychains. I have the poison apple from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I have a rainbow um, flag that she made me. So Mandy is able to really customize an order just depending on what your hobbies and passions are. And you know, what item you're really looking for. So because you're listening to me talk about Mandy, she said that anyone who goes to Mandy Made It on Instagram and orders from her, and they've heard the Ivory Tower Boiler Room ad, she will give you all a free Ivory Tower Boiler Room t-shirt with your order. So head right now to Mandy Made It. You know, if you were really looking for that special gift, now you don't have to look any further because I have you covered with Mandy Mated. Okay, I hope you all enjoy your items from Mandy Mated. And please make sure that you take a photo of your crocheted items so that we can share it out on our social media. I know Mandy would love that. And I would love to see what you all are ordering from her. She even has an adorable pillow called Netflix and Chill. And she has these cute coasters that she crochets for your favorite coffee or tea mug. So enjoy all your Mandy Made It products. Well, and you're so right. I mean, I love all genres of literature. I mean, I have a PhD in English. Not everyone who has a PhD in English, I guess could say they love every genre, which is their, um, right to say that and have their preferences. I mean, I think a lot um, because I wrote on Whitman right. like closely for my dissertation. Um, I'm such a poetry, queer poetry lover. And I think poetry is the genre that I found has the most attractors or even those who are nervous to approach the form of poetry. Um, but I always say there's always a way into any genre. Like even when I teach poetry or I teach the short story, drama, you know, novel, what have you. Um, it's always about what, you know, what are you reading for? Like what is your process as that person in the solitude? What makes literature so special in my opinion is, you know, you're the writer then the private experience we each have with, say, Dreaming Home 
and how we're able to pull each story and organize it in our mind. Like maybe, you know, we only read one story a day, but then it makes this arc and you have this connectedness to the whole narrative, which I think is so brilliantly done, Lucian, and was such a great idea by your publisher or colleague because, you know, the short story of Rose for Emily, that's one of my favorite short stories by Faulkner. I think it's better than his novels is, um, you know, not really knowing why um, there's like a decomposed body in a Rose for Emily. Like there's all the mysteries and the unraveling, but then you're left uh, aghast and just left up in the air. I mean, The Great Gatsby kind of works like that too. Um, novels can do it. And I think yours just does it in such a nice way. And do you remember there was that book in 2019 called um, Ducks Newburyport? They're actually um, my publisher, Billy Oasis, uh, published it in 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 uh, uh, North America. I I I have to say I did not. I wrote only a little bit of it. Uh, it, it, it is a it is a real challenge. Yeah. So for everyone out there, it's this book by Lucy Elman that is one sentence for a thousand pages and it's all stream of consciousness. So think Ulysses on steroids. Um, well, she's apparently actually, a, big fan, a big fan of, of uh, Joyce. Wait, you are or not? No, she is. Oh, she is. That, she is. Yeah, I was going yeah. to say, I like Joyce's short stories. Talk about short stories. I recommend his, um, there's one about the shops and the bazaar. I'm trying to remember what it's called, but there's like a marketplace story. Um, and that one is really well done in my opinion. Um, but when it comes to stream of consciousness, go to Mrs. Dalloway, <laughs> my opinion. Um, I think Virginia Woolf is just, he it's really nails right. it. Um, I have to say, I've been listening to this incredible um, uh, audio version of Ulysses, uh, but on the Naxos uh, label. And this guy's uh, made a career of narrating Joyce. And mm. it's not, you know, in the in the large, it's not any more comprehensible. But beat by beat, it's completely comprehensible. They're like people hanging out in bars and drinking, getting really drunk, and prostitutes. And the way he narrow narrates it, it's also hysterically funny. So I it comes was, alive. Yeah, that's exciting. I was yeah. not prepared to you know how engaging and funny Ulysses is, but. You know, if you read it on the page, I don't believe there's any punctuation or I mean, it, it is tough, you know, but this guy is named like Jim something, I can't remember last name, really does all that work for you. You know, he's parsed it. it is, so he lays out the sentences in a, in a way that's really comprehensible. So I highly well, recommend I'm going to get that. my hands on it um, because yeah. I love audiobooks and it's something that I think our culture now is really turning towards, um, you know, hearing the words a lot aloud and having that performance sense is exactly what storytelling is. It comes from the oral tradition. So I think that hearing Ulysses like that is really entrancing. Um, 
So, and this guy does all the, his name is Jim Norton. It's on the Naxos audio, but, and he does all the voices, right? So you can keep, there's like hundreds of characters in Ulysses, right? But you can keep them all straight because the voice, he does all the voices. And well, that's uh, like, I always say to those who are nervous about Shakespeare and understanding, I say there's so many free performances mm -hmm. on YouTube or um, from your public library, you know, um, you could go to Audible, but if you have a public library in America, Libby, L-I-B-B-Y is the free app for public libraries. And you can just like find all these audiobooks. And there's so many cast performances of, you know, The Tempest or Romeo and Juliet. And it's wonderful to hear. Um, I love to view it, but there's something about that isolating experience of even listening. Why people are listening to us right now. The the podcast form and the uh, capturing of the nuances of someone's speech pattern mm -hmm. it just really brings it alive. It's like how I would really recommend listening to Emily Wilson's new Odyssey translation by audio mm -hmm. form, um, especially, especially when they were supposed to be done in the Homeric oral tradition of a storyteller. Mm -hmm. Um, but okay. that's gotten a so, lot of that's yeah. got that translation's gotten a lot of buzz. I haven't I haven't looked at it yet. Yeah, but like maybe even listening to Ducks Newburyport, that's gonna be all my homework. Is I'm going to <laughs> maybe I'll have to interview Lucy Elman. I will. If it, the fact I'll listen that, to the audiobook version. Uh, I think I could get through it. All this and it's to start with the fact that. Well, and the hardest part in a stream of consciousness, like why it becomes more of a um, almost an academic exam of de deconstructing the novel is you have to really figure out where you're going to take breaks. And it's hard yeah. because you don't have chapter breaks. You don't have right. sections. It's right. just going and going and going. Um, right. Actually, I think Mrs. Dalloway has chapters. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. I don't, does Ulysses, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, it does. Uh-huh. It's okay. arranged because it's um um. It's a apparently it tracks you know the, the, Homeric the Odyssey. Legend. Yeah, yeah, the Odyssey, yeah. Because yeah. there's Penelope. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the wife section I've read a lot in my studies, which she gets like she's having so many erotic thoughts and there's right. like <laughs> affairs and dalliances. I don't. <laughs> oh yeah, she's thinking about some guys. Cock. It wouldn't be an ivory tower boiler room episode unless I said cock. Um, okay. So <laughs> as we wrap up all of that, um, now we've added a, a lot of books and I'm so glad you brought up the audiobook enriching experience. Um, I am curious, is Dreaming Home available via audiobook? Um, unfortunately, at this point, it isn't. I asked them if they were going to do it because I wanted to audition for it. Um, oh, because, because I've had some theater training and those first two cha chapters have got to be uh, delivered in a Texas accent. So uh, uh, they said they were going to, but there's been no movement on that um, uh, that I know of. So. Well, hopefully when this comes out, there's more momentum. So let's get that audiobook out there. <laughs> Biblio, Biblio Oasis. Um, yes. Just be, yeah, it really helps just have, you know, the more formats, the more eyes and ears, right? Um, so, you know, as we wrap up, 
I'm just curious with your work out there, you have this new hybrid genre approach of writing, which I think is wonderfully done, Lucian. You have so many complex themes from like AIDS activism, awareness, homelessness, um, you know, even someone's coming out, um, they're awakening as a person, experiencing trauma, but also being the one who inflicts pain and trying to figure mm -hmm. out the process of being the abuser, which we don't always see that side of the one who actually does the abusing reflect on that experience. Um, how does it feel to have such heavy topics, but yet, like you've said, you balance it with humor, you balance it with levity. What do you really want your readers to come away with, with all of such weighty matters that they're reading? I mean, I hope it doesn't feel weighty when you're reading it. Like I said, there's a lot of humor in it. A lot of that humor is generated by these over outsized characters. All of them, most most all of them are women. There were, I had a lot of really strong women in my family, so it, it comes out in 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 this form. So I think it's quite funny. It's quite engaging. It's even a bit of a page turner because you kind of like want to know what happens next. And um, um, what was the question? Oh, <laughs> what no, do you, so what, what do you I want your readers to come away with? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I think that this um, that this question of searching for home is a it, an identity, you know, uh, is a lifelong endeavor um, that we're we you know we're always looking for that, and it's always shifting, and it doesn't have to be some big traumatic thing that causes a shift. It could just be change in circumstance or you move to another city, you get another job you know, you have to get new friends all of a sudden, like I've done when I had come, when I moved to Toronto and uh, um, that that process is, um, it, it can be difficult and challenging, but it, it's, it's deeply enriching. And I think that's what we see at the end of the book. There's a kind of reconstituting of this family that had fallen apart is kind of reconstituted there at the, on that concrete uh, uh, landing. Uh, and, um, and yeah, that's what we're doing all the time. So, And you hope that you've become more self-actualized or even what you've learned from those changes. Like I even feel right now, that I'm um, being shaken up inside in really empowering ways because I'm not at the university and I now I'm finding my own voice and my journey on my own. And it is full of obstacles, but it's also so beautifully empowering, Lucian. And I know that I'm coming out on the other side I'm still the same person, but I've been deeply shaped and I'm no longer, um, I don't want to say passive. That's not the word. Uh, um, I'm not in my safe zone anymore. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, not, um, what's the word? <laughs> that, you know, I'm not, um, sorry, that was a rhetorical question to you, Lucian. Um, that, I'm not just resting on my laurels, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, um, I'm being challenged. You know, I'm not just um, 
allowing myself to like your the family that you are exploring in your novel or even your own life, Lucian, it sounds like you've never wanted to just play it safe. There you go. I knew I would find it eventually. Um, so something so beautiful in that, even though it's fraught and full of discomfort, right? You're not just in the comfort zone, but some people, right, they want that security, but we do need these obstacles in our lives to grow. And Absolutely. To and you need them in fiction. And, you know, um, one of the things I'd say is that, you know, you, you'd like to feel that you're uh, becoming actualized and stuff, but I'm old enough, you know, to realize that a lot of the times you're just blundering through and there's a kind of beauty in that. And I think that happens in the book, you know, there at the end, Jason, Kyle's lover and the, and his sister are kind of blundering through and and what gets them through is each other you yeah. know is they need they need the help of other people and um they need to connect and even though they don't have the answers and they kind of really are just as clueless as where they were before you know they've reached out to each other in a way that uh i think is is deeply hopeful and um um i certainly um still i could sometimes re read that ending and still and still get all teary so it still affects me and i hope it will affect others when they read it well and it's so inspiring to even you know have me reflect as i've been reading it as i'm here with you on like you said you know you hope that you become self-actualized but i like that um philosophy you have about Everyone out there is just trying to get by and they're, you know, um, floundering, floundering. Yeah, yeah. They're floundering through life. But, you know, you think that maybe some people um, actually have a plan laid out in front of them. And some do have a plan, but it doesn't always go according to your plan. And now I've learned from your work to sometimes just let go of the need for everything to be, you know, point A to point D, point A. It is going to work out in the steps it will. Just throw yourself out there in terms of your voice and your passion. So speaking of passion, this has been so wonderful, Lucian. I loved our conversation. I Me too. Want, yes, I want everyone out there to get their hands on Dreaming Home. I have a link in the episode notes um, for where to buy it. I have Lucian's website. Um, I think you also have social media, so anywhere they can follow you, Lucian? Sure, I'm on Twitter, Lucian Childs, I'm on Instagram, um, uh, you know, some form of Lucian Child. You can find me on my website, I'll have links to all those uh, places, that's www.lucianchilds.com, so you can, uh, you can search for me on the web and you'll find me. Wonderful. Well, Lucian, congratulations on your debut novel. Thank Excited you. for more people to get their hands on it. And it's been wonderful having you here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you very much, Andrew. Okay. Best Bye, of luck Lucian. to you. Thank Bye -bye. you.